Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 253 for March 23rd, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, Go Grizz, in fabulous Missoula, Montana, where it was 71 degrees this afternoon, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful temperature for late March. But I'm not here to talk about the weather. I'm here to talk to Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well, joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. Excited to be North Carolina bound in like three months or something crazy like that. And uh, yeah, enjoying the third trimester of Classes with students, uh, we're on like, what, lesson nine. We got about, four, that means 14 or 15 more meetings like every other day with kids, like 10 weeks. What's going on? Spring break's over and we're in the rush to graduation and the empty nest. It's the rush to the empty nest, which actually is kind of exciting. So what is this show that we've been doing for 252 episodes? Yeah, well, first, 250-anything episodes, wow, that's uh, we've been at this for quite a bit of time, but this Ed Tech Situation Room is a podcast, as I'm sure you've already figured out, and we like to take a look at the Ed, not the Ed headlines, the tech headlines, and kind of shoot them through the education prism to see if we can't provide any insight and commentary for fellow educators, administrators, IT professionals, and other folks that work in schools across the educational sphere in an attempt for clarity and maybe for uh, education and growth. And each week we publish all of our links uh, on our massive size Google document, uh, edtechsr.com slash links, where I'll take you right there and you can see all the links we talk about and quite a few we don't get to on a weekly basis as well. Um, but tonight we have news on Google Apple, Russia, Ukraine, some supply chain information, uh, our, our kind of potent potable category known as the tech correction, um, uh, some creation and creating news, connectivity news, media literacy news, and of course, we'll end our show tonight on our Geek of the Week, which is our um, kind of geeky thing we like to share with you for the purposes of gathering uh, information and insight. Um, Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start tonight? Well, gosh, why don't we just go straight for the, the, the straight tech news before we jump off into Russia, Ukraine. And uh, I definitely want to want to talk about the media literacy a little bit. But uh, can we can we start with some Google news? Sure. I'll, I would love to. And to there, there are a couple of things. The first one is that I'll, I'll do the most recent one first. And there's some other maybe more philosophical Google news that we can take a look at. But. Uh, the Verge reported today that Google is starting to test Android developers and their ability to use their own billing systems, and they're going to spart, spart, start with a Spotify app, which I try to mix the word start and Spotify together. Um, but the idea is, is that up until this point, the way both the iOS App Store and also the Google Play Store worked was that you uh, utilized their payment systems, and then uh, you got a cut of it. 
uh, I'm sorry, you, uh, Apple and Google got a cut of it. And that cut can be really, really high, upwards of, of, of 30, 35% uh, in, in some cases. And there have been lawsuits over this against both Google and Apple. Um, the lawsuits haven't really led to a whole lot of resolution yet, uh, as there's been a lot of technical things in regards to the lawsuits. But this would be the first time that uh, Google is going to allow outside pay services. And I would just say that this is probably inevitable in part because it it just looked like that it wasn't sustainable for Apple and Google to continue to take such a high cut of the uh, income they received from that. And the way that worked with Spotify was that you couldn't actually sign up for a pay account on Spotify. You could sign up for a free account on Spotify. You couldn't do a pay account, which gets rid of the advertising and ads features. You had to do that um, on the uh, web version of that particular product. And so it is an interesting phenomenon. It certainly perhaps suggests the beginning of something new in regards to these app stores. I highly doubt that it's going to lead to uh, cheaper prices for end users, to be quite frank. And that's been an argument all along was that the competition, and I put that in quotation marks, the competition would somehow lead to better outcomes for consumers. I don't believe that to be the case. And so coming to a an Android device or, an I, well, at least an Android device for right now near you is the opportunity to utilize other payment mechanisms. So my thought from the school perspective as a, now this is my third year to be a recovering tech director, um, you know, Spotify subscriptions is not going to impact schools very much, but if this gets a lot more complicated and more fractured, I can see that being even, well, well, I'll just, I'll state it aspirationally and affirmatively. It's an opportunity for someone to help schools out and, you know, try to make this a little bit more dif- less difficult. Uh, one of the things that was beneficial to Apple's model and, and still is, I, I'll, I'll argue this point and I'm sure other people might may not agree, um, but the volume purchasing, the VPP, volume per- price purchasing, I don't know what that stands for. Anyway, VPP system is how you are able to license stuff. Um, the whole marketplace has kind of shifted a lot more towards subscriptions, right? I mean, even app developers really, you can look at explain everything as a, as sort of a case study. Uh, originally, you know, Hey, buy this app and then you'll, you know, get upgrades for free and you'll never have to buy it again. Well, that's not a very good formula for developers staying in business. And so explain everything like a lot of different developers that are still going is to shift to a subscription model. Um, and that's, you know, met with different layers of success. I have not been managing our iPads and Chromebooks, you know, directly for, for, you know, two and a half years now. Um, But what I've heard from our IT department is that it is, it's kind of complicated and difficult uh, in terms of some of the different apps and figuring out how to get some of these to work. And with the the play store and the different, you know, licensing means we're, we're working, you know, with Microsoft and their 365 uh, set up for licensing um, those apps that get licensed, but then like Minecraft education, it's a little bit like Spotify actually, because you have to go to another site in order to get your license and be able to, to log in, you know, but you get the actual app from the play store. It doesn't do you any good to have the store if you can't log in, uh, unlike a, you know, something as a free tier like Spotify. Well, I don't know. I guess I take that back. I think they give you a, a little bit of login time, maybe before your account, um, you know, like 30 days or something. Anyway, I think it is a challenge. I think it also just reminds me of how important it is that schools 
are hopefully having good dialogue about digital content, about the ways that a variety of different kinds of digital content can be brought into classes. It's a lot more than just purchase textbooks, you know, open content and OER resources, um, the content that you pay for, the subscriptions that are worth paying for, all of that stuff is just super interesting. And I think there's also a really important need for groups like NCCE and ISTE uh, and other groups to really help schools, librarians, tech directors, leaders, principals and superintendents navigate this with teachers, with, you know, students in partnership, because it really shouldn't be a static thing. Like, oh, yeah, we've been having the same licensed content for 10 years and it's all great. I mean, it is such a dynamic environment when it comes to digital content that that is something that needs to be revisited on a regular schedule. So I agree with you. I think this is sort of Google reading the tea leaves and saying, hey, I don't think we're going to be able to have this single app store payment model forever. And so they're, you know, experimenting with it and, and kudos for them doing that. But again, I think that a more fractured and confusing environment can be difficult. And it already is, at least in the perception of some. And, and so I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of challenges for educational technology leaders and school leaders um, when we have multiple app stores, you know, even when we are all using, let's say, a Chromebook. Absolutely. And I thought of one other thing that I think would annoy me a little bit about that. Obviously, what has happened with um, all these applications is that instead of going through Apple and Google's payment systems, they instead say you just can't pay for something at all in the app. And you have to do that via the web, uh, either on your phone, so in, in, in a Chrome or Safari uh, app, uh, as an example, or do it on the web itself. But I one thing that's very convenient, I tend to prefer when I'm subscribing to something on an app to do it on the Google uh, uh, Play Store or the uh, App Store from Apple because it's so easy to cancel it. And you just go into um, subscriptions in the Play Store or you go into your account in Apple and there's a list of all your subscriptions and you could just one click get rid of something. Whereas now you're going to have to go to probably a website uh, to get rid of that, and you may or may not be able to cancel that on the app. So uh, this is, it, it, it does tip the balance really much in favor of app developers, and I'm not saying that's bad. I just think that, that shakes things up a little bit. I'm not, uh, I, I'm reasonably convinced this is not going to bring a lot of great changes for consumers as much as it's going to bring, uh, you know, uh, good things to app developers. But I suppose we'll have an opportunity to see as these start to roll out more. My one other thought on this is sort of a tech correction law, monopoly, antitrust law thought, <clears throat> not a lawyer, read, read a bunch about this. One of the most important parts and aspects of like, let's say antitrust legislation has been, what is the impact on consumers and especially price? Does it bring consumers benefit? And I think this is a good case where there's a lot of other things in addition to just price that need to be taken into consideration. Um, and, you know, we kind of need antitrust legislation to be updated in the United States. I'm not super optimistic about that happening in the near term, but we certainly need more than just price to be the bottom line of what people are looking at, you know, making these kinds of decisions. So, yep, absolutely. All right. And then two other uh, two other big things that, that I'd love to talk about in the Google world. This one's been around for a, a little while. We've carried over, but I want some time to talk about this. Um we, we reported several weeks ago that Google is, is trying to do something with tablets in the Android world. And we've talked about several times over that Android tablets um, have just not 
really come to fruition and have not really become a real factor in the marketplace. And um, uh, there's, I, I think there's lots of, of reasons for that, but I find the Chrome OS tablet to be a much better uh, option uh, for end users, even though Android apps are okay, not great uh, on, on, on Chrome OS tablets. But um, there is now uh, an attempt on Apple's part um, to try to woo tablet. I'm sorry. Google. Google. Yeah. The, on the part of Google's part to try to woo uh, people to Android tablets. And one of the things they're doing is encouraging developers to do tablet first designs on some applications, which already happens at, 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 at uh, Apple right now that developers can um, uh, uh, have two versions of the same app, one that's aimed towards the iPad and one that's aimed towards the iPhone. Um, and, um, uh, the bottom line is that so far they're not better. Uh, and there are a lot of experiments going on. And I, I, I'm citing an article from nine to five Google on March 14th, um, where Abner Lee talks about, uh, uh, that, uh, even though he's very much, um, uh, 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 wants a Google tablet to be a good experience, uh, the tablet first, um, uh, piece isn't really working out for him, uh, yet. And the, um, the, the applications aren't, the ones that are even, you know, tablet or designed for tablet first just aren't really great yet. And I think that's a real problem that, that makes a, a Google tablet a real issue that the apps just don't really work great on that larger screen. Um, but I would also say, and this is where I, I think, uh, Wes, I want to hear a little more about your, your thoughts on this. We've talked several times before. You're not going to find two, you know, bigger tablet advocates uh, in general. I love using a tablet as a consumption device. And there's probably no one I know in education that is more of an advocate for tablets as a creator device than Dr. Fryer here, right? He's been uh, uh, talking about that uh, really since the the iPad was released uh, 11 years ago. So the bottom line is, is that I think we, we've got a couple of good advocates on here uh, for tablets. And yet I still feel like tablet OSs, this includes iPad OS, just aren't laptop or desktop replacements yet that um, I could see uh, temporarily over the weekend, maybe when traveling, if you're not doing a lot of power usage where an iPad, for example, could be the single device to bring with you if you're not doing any heavy work. But the bottom line is, is that the more complex your work is, the more intense your work is, chances are that it's going to pale in comparison to bringing your MacBook Air or your Windows laptop, or um, I also think a Chromebook uh, uh, fits with well within that architecture as well. And there is a, a, an interesting article on on How to Geek, which I think is a wonderful site um, uh, uh, for for kind of learning more about how to do uh, tech things in a good and nerdy way. And uh, they're, they were trying to advocate for, you know, uh, how to make an Android tablet a laptop replacement. And I was looking at this and it was just ridiculous. It's stuff you might imagine, you know, getting an external keyboard is, 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 uh, a part of it. Plugging a mouse in is part of it. Uh, getting dongles to be able to do things with it is part of it. But in the end, it's not the hardware that's the problem. It's the operating system that's the problem. And uh, to be honest, this is one of the reasons why I think Android tablets didn't go anywhere in the education space. They were working towards that, and they had a group of tablets that could be managed um, by the Google admin interface for, for education, but they just weren't good enough to do anything with. So your thoughts, sir, as tablets as a, uh, a desktop replacement? This article is kind of like a baby duck syndrome gone bad. Because, yeah. Like 
run a, run a remote desktop app on your Android tablet. Uh, you don't really need to do that. That's, that's not the purpose. And, and I don't know if you're thinking about, I just, you know, I want to replicate everything I can do on my, on my laptop. I, I, I don't know that that's the right mindset. Um, I totally agree that, of course, that the tablets are wonderful. Um, I love mine for consuming. I'm distracted by mine a lot more. I've been reading actually on my Kindle a lot My more. My Recently, my daughter <clears throat> has taken over my iPad before actually she left for France. She'll come back and maybe get it again because um, she was doing she's been doing an art project, writing a book and doing illustrations. Um, but I really do think that the capability to do different kinds of, of editing and creation, right? Um, I'm a big fan of mobile videography and quick edit videography. And this idea that there's probably a lot more people that could be creating videos and, and editing them and sharing them on a simple interface like iMovie for iPad or for iOS versus like a full-blown Final Cut Pro or something. Um, Anyway, that's just something that continues to fascinate me. And I think one of the deals going on with Google is that they just haven't catered to the developer community in the same super intentional way. And, of course, you could also say expensive and sort of high-end way, you know, that Apple has with their developer conference. But I think that Apple has historically recognized, at least part of them have, and I think Jobs did this, recognize the iPhone and then the iPad as a different category of computing device. My, our son uh, got an iPad as an iPad air pro. It's a real high end one anyway, um, maybe like six months ago or something. He is com- like completely windows and Linux uh, for his work for NASA. Uh, but he, but I mean, you think he enjoys his Mac. He had his Mac throughout college and for his purposes, playing games, surfing the web, um, you know, doing some communication with social media apps, I think reading Reddit, and I'm saying this like I'm seeing him all the time. I don't get to visit with him that often anymore. But in his use case, which is not the heavy, you know, pro user, prosumer user that you're talking about, Jason, with, with um, you know, serious kinds of media production needs or, or just, you know, heavy uses of, of multiple apps. I think it's working for him and he's using that as a, as a replacement. So when it comes to productivity and the ways that we're productive, I think that if you, um, you know, I, I've certainly found myself relying much less. I mean, I'm not doing the entrepreneurship and small business sort of things that I, that I have done before, but like I used to use software that I had to run on my computer. It wasn't web-based, you know, I've migrated to a lot more web-based stuff and so there are a lot more things that could be done on any platform, be it Chromebook, you know, tablet or whatever. Um, but I, but especially when it comes to writing, you know, the keyboard, how important it is to, to have comfort and, and what we're used to with all that. I just don't think there's uh, right now a tablet replacement for that. But if you're looking at doing other kinds of things, you know, besides needing to, to do uh, a lot of intensive typing on a keyboard, um, and then having specialized software that is, is more intense, let's say, than what you can do in the web browser. Um, I think that the tablet can, can do a whole lot. And I also think Apple just continues to do a great job with its developers, helping cultivate them and support them. And part of this is also the, the, eco, the ecosystem that they're in, right? Uh, it has been a lucrative market. And I'm not saying this as someone who is an app developer and knows this, but my perception is, and they definitely list off a lot of money, a lot of numbers. 
Yes, Apple's made a lot of money charging 30% in the App Store. But at the same time, developers have made a lot of money as well. And they need to be able to make money if they're going to be able to stay in business. So I think there's a lot of different layers to it. Um, I'm really thrilled that Google has been so successful with the Chromebook. And a big part of that is the fact that they've provided something that is a lower cost device that's going to be very appealing to schools, especially when it can provide somewhat parity in a lot of you know, basic kinds of applications like we need to do in school using a learning management system. We're processing, accessing the web, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to be running off to purchase an Android tablet. I'm glad that you've brought these articles to my attention uh, because I honestly, I think I'd seen that nine to five Google article after you had maybe talked about this a couple weeks ago, but um, I just think it's something we're going to continue to see, you know, iteration and attempts on, but we're not seeing anything that's ground shaking, earth shattering. And I don't think it's going to really impact schools very much. You know, the Chromebook is going to continue to be, uh, the most important platform for schools. Boom. I, I think right. that's it. Uh, let's continue to iterate and, and innovate Microsoft and other companies. But the Chromebook is is pretty much um, the main show in town right now. And these other things are going to be more on the consumer side, which yeah. is not a small marketplace, but it's not going to, I think, have the educational impact um, that Chrome will continue to. And then one quick article from a couple of weeks back that I think is is important if you happen to be in a Chrome OS dominated district. This is from Kevin Tofels about Chromebook site on March 1st. But Lacrosse, L-A-C-R-O-S, which is an effort on the part of Google to make out of date Chromebooks um, a, a still a, a usable reality. And for those of you unaware of the situation. What happens right now is that when you have a Chromebook that has expired, right, which it's not getting updates anymore, it's at end of life, it you get a message that says it's no longer updatable and that you won't receive, be receiving updates. And um, I'm not totally uncomfortable with that because I do think that there is a limit to which you can update Chromebooks. I know there are some people, for example, that are still using their um, their CR 48s, which was the the uh, uh, Chromebook that was released as a sample in 2010. That's a 12 year old device at this point, and that is too old, I, I think, and uh, probably hasn't received updates probably in in seven years, eight years maybe. Um, but right now, um, a current Chromebooks released this year will receive, I think, it's nine years of updates. Other Chromebooks uh, that were released in 2014, 15, 16, 17 are either expired or will be expiring in the next year. It doesn't mean you can't use it. It just means it doesn't get updates anymore. But Lacrosse is an effort on the part of, of Google that installs the Chromium browser. That is the open source version of Chrome and allows you to install that. And it receives continues to receive updates after the Chromebook is expired. And, of course, the most dangerous thing about uh, an unupdated Chromebook is the browser itself. So if you're trying to hold on to older Chromebooks, especially, and I would maybe say hopefully, if you have invested in uh, Chromebooks that are not the lowest end models available. So we're talking about probably i3 chips and maybe a four to eight gigabytes of RAM. You might be able to keep those going longer and have them be functional and safe by using lacrosse. And it's starting to turn into a great Chromebook experience. So I just want to mention that, uh, especially for IT directors that are maybe looking at uh, uh, expiring Chromebooks in the next year or two. On a completely unrelated topic, when I fashion my my webcasting cave in North Carolina, I think I'm going to need the North Carolina flag and a good stack of books. You know, <laughs> look for yeah, that. Mike keeps getting bigger too, yeah. for that matter. So to that article though, that's really exciting and good. And 
what is your your pixel you have a pixel book right that you picked up used is that in that same category of like the original losing, pixel losing updates yeah uh well it is losing updates but the problem is is that it wouldn't qualify for that because uh you would have to it would have to be updated to the chrome i think it's 100 102 103 version oh. to then turn on the flag to be able to do that oh. that said i mean i do have my um it's around here somewhere i do have my original 2013 um, uh, uh, Chromebook Pixel, um, but I've installed um, uh, Chrome OS Flex on it. I put new firmware on it and installed Chrome OS Flex, and it, it is now uh, functioning uh, quite well again. The only problem with it is, and again, I as much as I love the platform, um, there's a driver issue, and it immediately turns on the fan and doesn't turn off again. And this thing doesn't generate a lot of heat in the first place, but you probably hear the fan in the background now, um, and it just doesn't go off. So I'm hoping that a driver update will uh, eventually make that um, uh, uh, issue. But it's actually uh, very, very functional. And this, again, is what uh, eight-year-old, nine-year-old hardware. Um, and it was an i3 chip um, to start with, so it wasn't a slacker chip by any stretch of the imagination. But this is a good example of Google hardware that is just not... Uh, is not updated anymore, and it's more than fast enough for the modern web. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, uh, our daughter's in France. She comes back on Saturday, and she took my Chromebook, you know, four years ago oh. about, I guess, a little more, three and a half. When I went to Egypt, I didn't I didn't want to take my Mac, and anyway, I was a little paranoid thinking about customs and things, and, you know, it's if you haven't uh, had the experience of just going all Chromebook, uh, and you take a trip or something like that and you have an opportunity to, I would encourage you to do that. Um, you know, I'm, as we look at shifting schools and what we're going to be doing in, in between, you know, platforms and things like that, uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, using, we've got, we've got a couple of Chromebooks that are still sticking around and, and they're older, but they're still doing good. So, um, I'm glad to know about, uh, lacrosse. Is that how you pronounce it? Lacrosse? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, just these efforts to, Keep keep some uh, level of security updates going. Um, and if you don't read about Chromebooks by Kevin Tofel and you're interested in Chromebooks, what are you doing with yourself? So, you know, get over there and continue to, to check out his work because it's like probably the best place to learn about Chromebooks other than Google themselves when they yep. issue, Agreed. issue things. All right. Well, you want to do some Apple news before we dump, jump into uh, the deep end? Yeah, um, first and foremost, um, uh, both the new iPad Airs and also the Mac Studios are, are, are landing on uh, desks all over uh, the United States. And so you're starting to see some reviews. I put a, a link to the uh, Verge review. It's very positive about the iPad Air 2022. It's the one with the M1 chip. Um, and I will tell you that it's my intent to buy one of, of these these devices. Um I'm going to keep an eye on Swappa. I think I can get $350 for my current iPad. Um, and then I happen to have a gift card sitting around uh, that will probably get me pretty close to there. Um, and I am really excited about it. I have read, uh, th this is a very positive review, by the way, and a, a lot of uh, compliments all around about this. Uh, lots of great things to love about the new iPad Air. Eight gigabytes of RAM is one of them. Um, the M1 chip is another thing to love about the device. Uh, it's got 5G, which is something that I uh, am, am very much enjoying. 
Um, I was talking to a friend the other day who was talking about he has a Verizon hotspot and that he likes to use when he's remote um, because it you know didn't use the data from from his cell phone plan. And he said that the hotspot is a 4G hotspot, but it was starting to feel increasingly slow in comparison to his iPhone, which is on T-Mobile that has a 5G connection. And sure enough, on Saturday, um, I was uh, uh, staffing a booth at a local education event um, and jumped on my face event. Look at that. Well, yeah, it was. I was I was masked up, um, and you know, people would come talk to me, and I would you know step five steps back from everyone uh, uh, to do that. But yeah, so face to face event, and um, the thing that I noticed was that uh, the Wi Fi in the the conference center was terrible, as it usually is, and so I jumped on my phone. I was able to get 350 megabits down over my iPhone on a T-Mobile 5G connection. And there is one 5G tower in, in the city of Missoula. And I just unbelievable. And so I've decided that, uh, that probably the upgrade's worth it just to go to the 5G. Cause I have a, a SIM card that sits in, in uh, my tablet. Um, a couple things to note, just based on my reading over the last couple of weeks. The first one is that there are some complaints about the build quality of the iPad Air 2022. And there's lots of conversations on Reddit about how people feel like the aluminum, particularly on the back of the device, is very thin and feels almost tinny in, in, in its presentation. And um, I will immediately put mine in a case. So I, I have never used an iPad or an iPhone for that matter without a case. I'm too clumsy to do it without a case. In fact, I was joking to my wife the other day, I've probably dropped my new iPhone um, since October, probably an average of twice a day, uh, like on the ground, bouncing around. I'm really surprised that, that, that I haven't cracked the screen yet or the back of the device yet. Um, but, uh, the bottom line is, is that I am too clumsy to have a caseless device. Um, but, um, there's been some complaints about that. And then the other thing to remember is that it has the M1 chip in it, but the comparison device is last year's, um, uh, uh, iPad Pro 11. And they're basically the same form factor, but there are huge differences between the two. Uh, yes, there's, I think, a three or $400 price difference. That's one major difference between the two. The other one is that um, uh, the screen on the, the iPad Pro is a much, 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 much better experience, according to almost every reviewer. I'm sure I could see the difference. I'm not sure if I care about the difference, and at least I don't $400 care about the difference, but that's something I've been also uh, thinking uh, about uh, as I start to look at this. Um, so, Wes, I, I guess I'd start with, uh, you and I are, are kind of the same in that we don't always immediately jump to the new Apple devices. Uh, you know, I've, uh, in fact, my... Um, uh, I usually used a, uh, get a used phone. I usually get uh, a used iPad. Um, and then when I get a desktop or laptop, I hang on to it for a long, 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 long time to get the whole value out of it. But any temptation with an M1 iPad Air? Well, temptation. I, I mean, it, probably for my wife, honestly. I don't know. It'll be, we'll, we'll do the same thing. We'll look at Swappa and see what the prices are and, and kind of weigh everything. Um, what I will say, and this is another feature, and I think they talk about in that article as well, it's the Apple Pencil 2. Have you played with one of those yet? Not. I have not, but I hear they're amazing. They are. What I'd say is it's interesting with the case. And I, I've got an early case where they, I don't know, if, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they've come up with something about this, but I actually have to take my iPad 
Air out is it's like the first version that that supported Apple Pencil too. I have to take it out of the case in order to, to to put the magnetically you know attached pencil there you know to charge it. I will say that's a lot better than the Apple Pencil One, which nothing has felt more un Apple to me than sticking the pencil in the in the Lightning port or whatever and having it like just precariously situated there where you're like I know this is gonna break. I never did break, but anyway, I think that Apple Pencil Two is just lovely. Uh, and I've, uh, you know, signed a lot of documents with it. Um, one of the areas actually Apple's done a nice job updating is you don't have to have special software for PDF, you know, editing and signing and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, we're going to be definitely looking at iPads. I know huh, I'll probably do the same thing you mentioned. I'll, I need to take my wife's iPad, which which is our own that we bought uh, and see what it is, what we could get for it on Swappa. I know she needs a new battery for it. Um you know, and, and, and she's not doing extremely, you know, rigorous video editing and, and things like that either. So it may be that she'd be, be happy, you know, getting a, a battery that doesn't have to be recharged quite so frequently, but it, uh, the form factor is, is good. And I, I don't know, I think our, our son absolutely loves his, um, I'll have to visit with him about it the next time that we talk, um, to kind of see how that's going, but everything that I've heard has been super positive. So, Again, yes, we can get the latest and greatest. We could also wait another year or so. And because we're using fairly old hardware, you know, something two years old on Swappa is still going to be an upgrade relative to what we have now. And that may be where we kind of do our cheap, cheaper skate, you know, shopping. But always exciting to see the improvements. And I think going with an M1 processor is absolutely fantastic for our youngest daughter who's about to graduate. I could go on and on about this because we're in, you know, hearing back from from universities and still two more that this week, one of them is is supposed to tell us for sure. You know, it's interesting because uh, I think actually all three of the engineering schools she's looking at are Windows platform uh, machines, but she wants a Mac to be able to have one for herself. And so we're going to if are the M2 supposed to come out before the summer? Do you know? Have you read about that for the? Yeah, and there's, there's actually an article today um, uh, that the Mac Mini is supposedly going to come out with an M2 model, and I don't think summer will be it. And I'm assuming, I mean, I'm assuming that that it would that at the same time the Mac Mini comes out that they would have a, an updated uh, uh, MacBook or MacBook Mac Air. Or they they rev it, yeah. Um, well, and, and, there's a lot of rumors that that uh, uh, of which I've I've seen no no hardware uh, specs yet. So this could be more rumor than anything else. They're also looking at some different form factors uh, with the iPad. Or I'm sorry, the MacBook Air, including a a larger than 13 inch, and so a 15 inch MacBook Air, which actually would be very tempting. Um, I, I I've used a 15 inch uh, Chromebook before with a big um, a, a big high definition screen, and it is a very great experience for especially if you're creator yeah well i cannot speak highly enough of the mac air our entire school uh, we were able to comprehensively do this big refresh and everyone this last summer got a new m1 mac air um it's just a phenomenal machine and one that i do not see i mean i think maybe we're instead of a five-year cycle we're looking at a four-year cycle of of refresh it's easily going to match that and it's going to be a great buy if if i think they'll probably let the faculty do that again um, you know, to, to pay for the residual and, and then keep the machine. Um, so anyway, it don't have to have an M2 to make that a good purchase. And I think uh, probably a new battery for an existing iPad and a new MacBook laptop, Mac Air, M1 MacBook Air for the 
the youngest daughter, are probably coming up in our horizon. Look at this, Jason. We've gone two-thirds of the show, and we haven't even talked about the tech correction or the Ukraine war, <laughs> or I haven't gone off on some media literacy tangent. So, you know, this is like, we are hardcore here tonight, folks. It's all Google and Apple. Well, uh, let me just mention one other quick article, uh, just because uh, I, I we've, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the Mac Studio uh, is, is released, and... Uh, there's a lot of really interesting uh, reviews um, up on YouTube. A lot of the, the prominent reviewers have spent a couple of days with it now. It's supposedly a very fast design, uh, no heat at all coming out of that thing. So that's super great news, too. Um, but the one thing that that uh, The Verge reported on on March 19th is that uh, people have got a hold of, of, of these uh, Mac studios and have tore them down. Um, and it looks like that um, there are two SSD ports on the um, on the motherboard, which means you may be able to add a second SSD drive, which would mean that the that the sport storage is upgradable. Um, so uh, it, that could mean a lot of things. Um, uh, uh, the Mac Studio is said not to be uh, there is not user accessible. Um, so if you need to add more storage in the future, please uh, consider configuring to a higher capacity. Um, and so, uh, that, that's what Apple says officially. But, you know, Apple is kind of famous, uh, for stuff like that, uh, that they have uh, undocumented features that end up becoming a, a bigger feature, uh, somewhat down the road. Um, I would also note that, and I was trying to find the article to share it tonight, but as an example of, you know, kind of an, uh, an Apple-like thing, um, they, uh, the, the new studio displays that, that are available, the $1,700 studios displays, um, which apparently are wonderful displays, but a lot of people are, are unhappy about the price. Uh, you can't remove the power cable unless you have a special tool from Apple that removes the power cable from the, the studio display. So very Apple and it's, it's, it's creation. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's one thing if you're in a town with an Apple store, but I'm a three hour drive from an Apple store. Um, and I used to be a five hour drive from an Apple store. So, uh, you know, that there, I find that to be of mixed results, but, uh, interesting hardware news there. And I'll do the Apple article I dropped in there. Uh, this is from back on March 15th from 9 to 5 Mac. 40 plus iOS 15.4 changes and features. Hands on with everything for iPhone and iPad. Now, having watched this, I'll say it's not a yawner, but like there wasn't anything that was incredibly like, oh my gosh, I that's the most amazing feature ever. These These strike me as mostly more incremental. But what is so cool about this article is that they have a great table of contents for... I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 different, well, I guess it says 40 plus. So uh, over 40 different new features, but then they're all time stamped in this one video. So you could watch the whole video, but let's say I want to know about uh, search Safari extensions. I can click that, skip down in the article, and then it's going, I said this, I think this is true. Huh. Okay. Maybe it's not for every single thing. For some of them, it's got a, it's got the, um, spot that you can just skip to that part of the video. Uh, so like I, iPad OS notes preferences was at three, you know, 346. So from a video standpoint, and I don't know if you all have done this before, but I'm, I'm doing my Gmail basics lesson with my fifth graders right now, um, which I'd recorded these two like longer videos, which are some of the more popular vid videos that I put on YouTube in the last few years, actually. Um, 
you know, it's a lot of stuff. And so timestamps, which are just, you know, the minute and seconds of the video, and you put that in the description, you can click right on it. Anyway, I thought that was cool. And I think these kinds of summary articles, when we have a new uh, upgrade to an OS, are extremely helpful. Um, even if you do watch, you know, the, the keynote or whatever, there's just a lot of in the weeds details that are into these upgrades and updates. Um, and so, you know, for those of us that are geeks with our, with our iPads, um, these kind of things are helpful to be able to learn some new skills and possibilities um, that, you, that you can do. And I think that might, Dr. Neifer, take care of all the Apple and Google articles for tonight. So kind of back, got back to our roots to be a little more on the nerdy side rather than the, you know, world coming to an end news at five uh, <laughs> coverage we've had a uh, dominant uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. So um, is there anywhere, I mean, there's, there's lots of interesting other things we could talk. Well, I, I'm going to talk about another practical one. Um, the Verge report say the T-Mobile um, has released some new uh, prepaid plans, including a connect plan that is a whole $10 per month. Um, uh, Wes and I are both happy T-Mobile customers, but I have noticed as of late um, that, um, uh, uh, it, you know, as an example, my parents are on my plan and we're paying well less than, than $40 a month uh, for each of my parents, but they use basically no data and they're barely using the phone. And they have a new plan available now that's a thousand minutes of, 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 of talk, a thousand text and a gigabyte of data each month for just $10 a month. And I believe that's $15 a month. Um, and then you get a discount for, uh, uh, I think paying by a credit card maybe? No, no. It's no, probably no. auto pay. Yeah, it's probably, yeah. uh, bill, uh, paperless. So, um, uh, that's really great, especially if you have parents or kids where you want to limit, uh, 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 their use of the device or you want there to be, uh, or you just want, want an absolute cheap piece. The thing I would really encourage you to do if it's, it's all possible is shop around a little bit. Like not every network is the same. And if you're in a place like rural Montana, you sometimes don't have a choice between, uh, the three carriers, um, there are places in the state of Montana where there's only Verizon access or there's only AT&T access, less places where there's only T-Mobile access, although I would imagine that, that some of those are, are popping up uh, in places across the region. But just remember that you have options. And um, if you're not hooked to your phone number, um, which I understand why a lot of people are, but if you can move your texting and your calling to Google Voice, for example, you can have to oftentimes just find Internet uh, or get uh, a SIM card for for dirt cheap and utilize you know change often and pay next to nothing uh for data and calls if you're not stuck to that original piece but that's that's pretty hard to pull off uh, unless you're kind of an uber nerd um but just a note there that these new connect pl pl plans low low cost connect plans are available from t-mobile and if you define yourself in that way we we embrace you with open arms yes. here at the edtech situation room you're just one of us so uh so we i actually changed our t-mobile plan for the first time in a long, long time. And we went to, I, I, I can actually qualify for the military discount as a, a vet. Um, and I uh, went to the Magenta, it's not Magenta Max, it's the one below that. Um, and then uh, finally did, it's, isn't it kind of weird? I haven't wanted to do the, the paperless billing, but they're, they're offering, you know, $10 off a month if you do paperless. Um, so anyway, that's interesting. We don't, I don't think have any phones that are 5G capable, but we're, we've been on that grandfathered plan. And anyway, uh, uh, four months ago or something like that, when we almost went for AT&T for three years with new phones and all that, you know, I said, good grief. I haven't even gone to T-Mobile to see what they can do. So I think we're going to be, you know, 
maybe in the neighborhood of like a 50 or $60 a month reduction in, um, in costs for our phone. But this is, it's one thing that's interesting and I won't talk about this too much more, but like our son who is living on his own, I think as a what 24 year old, uh, but he's still in our plan. It's like, you know, I think it's, it's either 10, 10 or 20 bucks. That is all it costs to have him as, as this, you know, a fifth line on our phone or on our bill, but that's pretty exceptional. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's good to see that, right. It's good to see options. It's good to see, um, you know, everybody doesn't have to pay 50 or a hundred bucks, you know, to, to have their cell phone plan. You're here. Okay. I think I want to take us, you took us down to connectivity. The net, the article right below that under media literacy, I'm going to want to mention this one. So this is from March 3rd. Um, but this is an article titled how Wikipedia gets to define what's true online. And this is actually by the um, author or one of the the, uh, the interviewee panelists on the Geek of the Week that I'll share. It's by Ethan Zuckerman. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by Wikipedia. I aspire to teach a course sometime in the next couple of years. Uh, I think I want to call it Wikipedia and hyperlinked writing. But this is some of the most insightful um, analysis that I have read in maybe, well, in quite a while about Wikipedia, the success that it is, you know, and the, the model and exemplar that we should regard it as in the way that it vets information and allows people to collaborate. We don't all see that a different version, our customized surveillance capitalism version of Wikipedia, right? You can go to the talk page and see where all these debates are happening. One of the things it mentions, and I thought this is interesting, the book is not out yet, um, but there is a book coming out uh, by South African media scholar Heather Ford. It's called Writing the Revolution, Wikipedia and the Survival Facts of the Digital Age. Evidently, she really looks at the article for Tahrir Square when Arab Spring happened and the activist that started that and tracks this and says that this is a very political kind of process. But the way in which Wikipedia today uh, relies upon mainstream media because you can't have, quote, original research on Wikipedia, things are supposed to be cited. And when they're not, they're called out and things can still remain on there with these warnings and stuff. But anyway, it's just fantastic. This isn't a very long piece. Um, Ethan Zuckerberg is a phenomenal uh, academic and um, it's a great article. And I really I really think that Wikipedia needs to have more positive press because when it originally sort of emerged on the Web 2.0 scene um, and, and he mentions it here, it's treated sometimes like as this magical unicorn that nobody could possibly replicate. It's just unique and unlike anything else, which doesn't really help it inform hey, how could we be using, you know, different collaborative strategies, um, you know, to be to be uh, you know, separated by space and time, you know, and be able to work together on projects and, and to even figure out what, quote, truth is and, and what we're going to, you know, accept as uh, a commonly held um, idea about a historical event or something like that. So fantastic article. Great. All right. Well, let's see. We've got, we got time for a little bit more. Actually, we started late. So we have about 15 minutes. We started about five minutes late. Uh, do you want to, we have some creating. If we want to kind of continue to dance around to some of our other tech correction stuff, uh, you got a, some creating articles, or at least one. I put in a couple too. So you want to go there? Yeah. And I want to hear more about that, that Vimeo uh, article, but I, I shared a, an interesting article, uh, tonight called a techscape why being your own boss or want to be your own boss online why it's not so simple and 
Um, you know, I would say that you're going to find, you're not going to find, you know, uh, uh, people that are, are kind of more, uh, into the spirit of the creator economy than, than, than the host of this podcast, right? Uh, Wes and I are both entrepreneurial in spirit. Uh, we both own small businesses. We both have hung out shingles before for the purposes of, of, of offering services and making a little moolah. Um, but the bottom line is, is that even though we are both, uh, uh creators in, in our own right, we also get that it's, that it's not a panacea, right? There's a lot of ways um um that um uh, uh it, it's, it's very challenging to make a full-time wage or to you know uh engage in your dreams uh, uh by being a full-time content creator and i also think that uh, uh I, I can't believe i'm starting to use this term on a regular basis young people are sometimes um you know lured into this notion that they can just be full-time creators uh and and you know they they suddenly have a thousand followers on um, YouTube and, and believe that this could be a lifestyle for him. And to be clear, I think there's a lot of room for that, right? Like the bottom line is, is that you platforms are available that can give you a worldwide audience with, uh, you know, with, with a relatively little connection. And, and if you can hold your, on your audience, that's really great. But, um, the, this idea of, um, um, uh, uh, that that this is going to be become like a, a an incredible career option um for a lot of different people is challenged by by many many different notions and and I'll give you just a couple of primary examples of this I watch a lot of creators on on YouTube. YouTube is is one of my favorite media channels. Um one of my favorite things to do on Saturday morning is to make myself a cup of coffee um uh and sit back um on my couch and uh you know I there's probably 20, 25 creators that I consistently watch videos. It's everything from travel videos to airline reviews, which are kind of silly and ridiculous, to some um, uh, uh, cooking channels. And, of course, there's a variety of nerdy tech channels that I really much enjoy. Um, but the problem is, is that the creator economy uh, isn't as clear as you might think it is. And pathways to success aren't always either easy or accessible to the common individual. And in the end, um, you may or may not be able to fully create uh, 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 in, in your vision or create something new and unique because in the end, you still have to make money that these uh, an artistic pursuit by itself isn't necessarily going to get viewers. And so this really, really interesting article from it's from Hussein uh, uh, Kesvana, uh, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, uh, it, it talks about how, you know, one of the ways that you have to kind of, trade yourself in or trade your vision in is that um, you, you have to optimize your creative products to the algorithm, because if you don't, you may not be able to get the viewers to sustain um, uh, income and that um, uh, independent creators that aren't hooked up into larger networks or otherwise being brought into large content creation houses um, you you may not have the creative resources to create the content that rules on major platforms, and it's probably not as easy as it looks. Um, and you know, I always think that's generally true. You know that uh, um, I've 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 seen uh, pro- I've seen a lot of prominent teachers, for example, um, that are uh, TikTok teachers that that have great channels that say, you know, I'm going to try to to be a full time creator. 
uh, on there. And, uh, you know, that, that, I think that's a lot easier said than done. I have really no idea what the TikTok economy looks like for creators. I have no idea what 5 million, uh, viewers does. And, and I, and I know for sure that every creator that seems like they're making money has to take on a lot of sponsorships to make that happen. Um, but those are the type of things I think it's important to talk about. If you're inspiring your students to share their views or to share their work via these audiences, I think it's also important to share articles like this um, to discuss that, you know, it's it's not it's not a panacea. There's a lot of work that goes into this and that, uh, you know, like like most rewarding vocations, um, you know, there, there's time and effort required. It's it's not just simply, you know, taking photos of things that you love. Absolutely. Um I don't remember which website it was. It's a very helpful comment to make. Uh, I can look it up, but it was a website on um, comparing uh, perspectives on different issues that I've learned about at the um, Summer Institute for, for Digital Literacy in 2019. And it was talking about creators and YouTube creators and just how many kids aspire to be YouTube creators and what the reality for those creators is, how difficult it is, how challenging to uh, meet the schedule. You almost feel like you can't go on vacation, just this constant pressure, you know, to, to publish and create. And so I definitely think that's an important thing to talk about. I mean, you know, kids want to be NFL and, you know, professional athletes of, of some flavor as well. And there will be some that can go do that. Um, the creator economy is there. Um, the article that you referenced, I think was talking about South by Southwest and just how many sessions there were at this year's conference. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of issues. And like we've said in other kinds of contexts, sometimes tech is an amplifier and there's different issues with capitalism, which is kind of the conclusion, I think, of that article that, you know, they're not necessarily being solved uh, with technology. In some cases, they're just being amplified. But it is definitely something to talk to our kids about. Um, and I think that, you know, at a bare minimum, find out who are the YouTube creators at your school. Do you have any kids that are having channels? Um, and some of them may just have, you know, a few views and not a big deal. But, you know, we've we've got one eighth grader that has uh, like thousands of followers. Uh, in fact, I'll, maybe that's something I can do. I, I'll still try to do like an interview with her if we can arrange that with her and parents and things like that. But it's just that that whole side of the economy of not just the economy of our culture the way that we get information the way that we're entertained and also this fits into where we understand our truth you know where do we trust um you know our our heart and mind and and who are we uh giving the privilege to you know put information ideas and images in, into our minds each each day all of that is important to understand to just be a citizen today and so good stuff all right, Vimeo. Had you heard about this? I've not. Okay, this is a pretty big deal. So The Verge reported on March 15th, uh, the headline, Vimeo is telling creators to suddenly pay thousands of dollars or leave the platform. Uh, and it says, pop, subtitle, popular Patreon creators are being hit with unexpected Vimeo price hikes as Vimeo shifts corporate strategy. And that shift of corporate strategy really is the key uh, to what is going on here. So um, the... The article starts off with a uh, Netherland-based creator joined Vimeo 13 years ago. Um, they're paying $200 a year, but suddenly they're told, "Hey, you've got you're in the top one percent of Vimeo users in terms of bandwidth usage. You got to start forking out $3,500 a year." Uh, she was given a week to update her content, decrease her bandwidth usage, or leave Vimeo. 
Now, I hope Vimeo has a really great system like Google Takeout, uh, which actually I've, I don't know that I got all of mine downloaded, but I've got quite a few gigs of video um, on my school account. And as I contemplate leaving, I've got to think about like, you know, con anyway, how, how all, if I, if I want to leave that behind or there's things that I want to take with me, but just to have a week to get all of your content when you're one of the top, like 1%, uh, you know, bandwidth consumers on Vimeo seems kind of ridiculous. Now there's another article, um, that I just found I, and as a sort of media news literacy uh, trick, you know, I, for something like this, rather than just go to, to Google, I'll go to new Google news and then search for like Vimeo. And so I picked up uh, another article that I'll drop in here. I've never heard of this magazine before, YM Cinema Magazine, um, but it has an, a good quotation in the very in the headline and explaining this business shift. Their headline is Vimeo. We are a B2B business to business solution, not the indie version of YouTube. Um, and that is a quote directly from Vimeo. So they have, you know, made this shift in terms of their corporate strategy. And I think that's super interesting because, you know, I've. I have a few videos out on Vimeo. I've kind of, I had dabbled with it. it. Vimeo allows you, or at least as I've used it in the past, to have more control over embedding and, you know, locking and just, you know, be, being able to have a little bit more access control over your videos. And so I have dabbled in creating a, you know, video library on my playingwithmedia.com site, um, which I update from time to time. <clears throat> but mostly those are YouTube videos. Well, in fact, they're all YouTube videos, some of which are publicly accessible, but some of them I've just made them unlisted. And so you can access it, you know, when you log into the site or whatever. And I've had that debate about, well, Vimeo, is it worth it? Would I have to pay this? Well, look, folks, if you thought Vimeo was an alternative for you as a, not even just small time, but maybe even a relatively, you know, large scale independent media producer, uh -uh. it's it's not going to happen because Vimeo's decided that's not what they want to do. They want to be a service for businesses. And that's why they're saying B2B. So Jason, do you know any uh, schools or organizations that might be impacted by that, that have gone on a real pro Vimeo strategy for their, for their video? Yeah. Um, one that I won't mention the name of, but I, I know that used it as, as a kind of the better alternative to YouTube so they could have more control over it. Um, and I also know, um, there's a lot of vendors that, uh, utilize the platform because it's, it's a lot more locked down. I mean, obviously they're, they're probably paying for, uh, that privilege, uh, in, uh, you know, and, and, and wouldn't necessarily, uh, uh, get this to, or this wouldn't necessarily apply to them. But I, I guess, I mean, I, I, you know, I like YouTube and, and, and obviously YouTube is a part of my media uh, diet. And I also uh, publish not uh, really for, um, 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 uh, not really for, for publishing to a wider audience. Uh, but I do uh, spend a lot of time utilizing YouTube as, as a, a strategy for sharing video screencasts and things that I do. I'll make them private or, or, or share them with one or two individuals. Uh, but I do think we need some alternatives in this space. And I always consider Vimeo to be, you know, as, as they kind of refer to there as a, um, uh, indie version of YouTube, right? Like, I, I think that, that there is something really, uh, to that. Uh, and I'm disappointed that they're not in trying to embrace, uh, smaller, uh, less profit driven creators more. I think we're still going to be able to utilize Vimeo based on this cursory reading of these initial articles, uh, for things that aren't going to be viral. But I think, you know, 
people who are very popular are going to have to pay large sums of money for that bandwidth popularity. And so it's just going to mean people are going to have to have to utilize YouTube because they're really, in my mind at this point, isn't another platform that can provide comparable reach, uh, you know, for free. So, yeah. Although, you know, your, your discussions of TikTok, uh, have me thinking. So I've been doing little, little shorts on my barbecue grill of, Ooh, here's the jalapeno poppers. Oh, here's the, f-. so, hmm, I don't know. Wes, you I gotta, gotta, you gotta play with media sometimes to figure out how it works. So maybe uh, there's some more play. You know, I, I am on barbecue TikTok, right? Like that's right. One of the I know. You TikTok that, you know, that I, I frequent, uh, and I think you would be an important voice in barbecue <laughs> TikTok. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, you have my mind going. So, well, we are approaching the the 60-minute mark. So would you like to share a Geek of the Week as we prepare to – well, here I am taking over the host role. <laughs> it's okay. To, I'll steal silent. it away. <laughs> Jason, what is your Geek of the Week? Hey, Wes, for sure. Um, there's a great article from Wired. Um, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Google Drive has integrated uh, uh, some wonderful new search tools, and I've already used these quite a bit. Some of them are just recast older tools, but I, I've noticed that it appears that the, the search uh, a function is, is a lot more functional, and they've adopted their so-called uh, chips, which are uh, pull-down menus and other contextual pieces to help you find your search better. And this Wired article, what I, what I thought was an unusually good article, um, for uh, showing you how the new system works. And so if you're interested uh, in that, or if you're supporting faculty, and now that this set, feature set is rolled out uh, to uh, users, that you may find some interest in this. It's from the March 6th edition of uh, uh, Wired, and it's from David Neld. Great article, Mr. Neld. Awesome. And I've got two quick ones. Uh, first is a podcast I just listened to today, actually. Um, it's on one of my favorite channels, um, which is by Ethan Zuckerman. And his channel is called Reimagining the Internet. And this is from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure that is at UMass, where he is a professor. He was a guest on an EFF podcast that I'd never heard of before, but I'm now subscribing to, called How to Fix the Internet. And so those hosts, Cindy Cohn, who I think may be the executive director of the EFF, and then Danny O'Brien, uh, just had a really, really excellent conversation um, about what is broken, what do we know about what is broken, what are the technological barriers preventing us, for instance, from being able to not have a cease and desist order from Facebook to be able to gather data and do academic research on their platform, just on the topic of tech correction, which we didn't really talk about much this week. That's fine. Uh, this is a fantastic podcast episode. And then the next one is uh, for, for Scratch. Um, as m- many of you may know, I love Scratch, Scratch coding. Scratch is going to be 15 years old. And so they have a studio that the Scratch team's officially put out. And it's a challenge. What does Scratch mean to you? And so you can create a project um, and then share that with the community. And man, I just love Scratch and the pedagogy and the creation and the whimsy and the computational thinking. And I can go on and on about everything about Scratch that I just love. I think I'm going to get to teach some courses on, you know, using Scratch in my new role as I have here the last three years. So that's it. That's what I got. Wonderful. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? Westfriar.com. And you can link to me at westfriar.com slash after and get all the social media links. W Fryer on Twitter is the main place that I share, but I am cooking with Wes from time to time. And, you know, it's fun. I play with media, and food at the same time. It's great. How about you? 
I, I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. But hey, this here is the Edit Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time. Although I suspect we may be moving to a new hour later this calendar year as Dr. Fryer becomes an East Coaster. But in the meantime, we would love it if you joined us live. Check out our Twitter handle, EdTechSR, for announcements when we go live. You can also see us live on YouTube and on Facebook. If you can't join us live, you can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and download a tiny MP3 file to listen to any edition of the EdTech Situation Room. Uh, Thanks for joining us for this edition of the EdTech, EdTech Situation Room podcast. We hope to see you next time. Stay safe. Stay savvy. Good night. Adios.